Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 70 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Giacomo. And I'm joined here by my affable co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man who feels most comfortable with two burner phones, a Rolodex, and a pack of marble menthols. <laughs> He's bit for more poisonous fruit than Adam and Eve. Of course, I'm talking about VWAP Trader 1, JJ. How's hey, it going, brother. Man? Good, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. And our guest today is a trader who is best known for his market wizard status, being profiled in Jack Schwager's new market wizards, a man who was president and founder of Trendstat Capital, author of two books. He runs enjoytheride.world, an educational website for traders. Of course, I am talking about the man singing bass in the choir, Tom Basso. Tom. How's it going, man? And, and I really do sing bass in the choir. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know you do. Uh, uh, Basso is uh, bass in Italian, in Italian. Right? sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's always, uh, I always enjoy when I get a fellow Italian on the podcast. I know we were talking a little bit briefly before. Yeah. Tom, if you were forced into a final meal scenario, what Italian <laughs> dish are you picking? Oh, hmm. Uh, that's a tough one, but I really like that asabuco. Um, depends on how they prepare it, but salt and boca lights up my mouth pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, love Italian sausage in any way. Absolutely. I'm going to make Friday night. I'm taking uh, chicken breasts and plumping them up with uh, brine and then slicing them down the middle and I'm stuffing them with Italian sausage and Italian cheese. Fontina cheese uh -huh. and doing a stuffed uh, breast and I'll do a uh, sort of a brown sauce for it. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That should be pretty delightful. It sounds it. I'm a huge fan of the sauce, the Italian sausage, uh, right yeah. up my alley. Love it. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've known you, I know you've dabbled a little bit in winemaking. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, uh, how's that uh, endeavor going? Well, I, I don't do it commercially. I could do it for friends. I uh, mm -hmm. create 28 bottles at a batch out of about a 30 batch juice that's brought into the house. And I lose about a bottle and a half to two bottles as I go through the stages and you leave the dregs in the bottom of the, uh, the barrel or the carboy that you're working out of. And uh, so little by little, you, you lose a little. And then uh, I probably bottle somewhere around 28, uh, sometimes 28 in a fraction mm -hmm. bottles and screw top only. I love screw tops. I make it easy. Um, it doesn't last long because I don't put preservatives in it, which means a lot of my friends who are allergic to sorbates and things like that love my wine. And uh, it doesn't last long but uh, because of the lack of preservatives, but it never seems to last long because we drink it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, I have to do new batches about every year. So usually Amarone is my favorite, which is a very expensive wine in the, at the liquor store. And I make it for probably somewhere between 12 to $15 a bottle because okay. I reuse wow. the bottles. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's excellent. Excellent. Save a little money, have more money in my portfolio. There you go. There you go. Man <laughs> of many talents. So just, just a reminder to the listeners, if you'd like to join JJ, myself, and a supportive community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. 
Uh, Tom, you uh, when you graduated college, you did not go right into trading. You started in another field. So can you just tell the listeners uh, how you made your way into trading? Well, I started out as a chemical engineer and I loved it. It was a great career um, while it lasted, but I realized very quickly that if you've designed one pump or one heat exchanger, you've pretty much designed them all. It's more of the same. You're filling out a bunch of materials, properties, and the chemicals that you're dealing with, say for a heat exchanger, the flow rates, uh, and you do some thermodynamic calculations. The computer does most of the heavy lifting, and out comes the design for a heat exchanger, depending on what you're trying to do, a tube heat exchanger or whatever. And so after about five years, I'd been promoted. I was getting the top rankings in my company for my uh, age group and level. Was promoted right away, became a senior engineer, was on my way to becoming a general engineer, and uh, ended up transferring over to the business side and starting an MBA program. And at the same time, I was getting very, very interested in stock trading. Met another couple of fellows at my company that were also chemical engineers and also were heavily into stocks. One of them was managing 600,000 of other people's monies uh, on his own at night, just friends. And uh, the other fellow and myself had started an investment club and we were essentially default managing the investment club. So the three of us decided to get together. That became Kennedy Capital back in, I think, 1980, roughly. And uh, one thing led to another. I decided to leave and do Trendstat, and then I could control my own destiny, which I did, and uh, eventually moved the company to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, which is where I ended up shutting it down at around 2003 and retiring. Mm -hmm. So I've had a smile on my face ever since that day. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, the constant... Um, responsibilities of managing like $600 million at the peak and hire, you know, 10 people and 40 computers and downlinks and audits from both the future side, the NFA and the SEC or the state of Arizona. The IRS came in one time. Uh, it's just a constant people looking over your shoulder, asking you questions, wanting to see your files. And I have none of that now. I just, I have four, four accounts now, two for my wife, two for me. Life is good. Yeah. Yeah. Very well. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I believe um, you, how you met Jack Schwager, it was at a, um, a Van Tharp uh, conference. Yeah. yeah. Um, who, you know, one of, one of, uh, one of the guys we trade with, I mean, he can't harp enough on Van Tharp. Um, yeah. and, uh, how, you know, how well he was, what was, what was that, um, that meeting like with Jack when you guys first met? Yeah, Jack was, a, I guess, apparently the story goes, and this is Jack telling it, that a lot of people were talking to him about, you know, you got to interview this Basso guy for your next book. He's got some interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Jack would look over at my returns and Jack was always into, he was a typical New York trader. I want to say <laughs> in the old days, I, had, I don't know whether he's mellowed quite a bit these days, but uh, very caffeinated. Uh, we think nothing of staying up all night and writing a chapter of the book or something like that. He very intense. And uh, at that point he was at, I think it was Prudential Beige, a director of research, if I remember or something, but he was starting to do the next book. And Tharp, who was in the first book, said, Jack, you really ought to interview him. 
And Jack said, you know, I look at Basso's returns. They're kind of boring. It's kind of tame. You know, I don't know if the editor would want anything. It doesn't, you know, doesn't have that pizzazz that we look for. And, uh, you know, a lot of the other traders in the book are these guys shooting for the hundreds of percent return, thousands of percent returns. They're day traders, floor traders. They're leveraged. Um, quite a lot of them don't exist anymore because they, you know, blew out or went bankrupt or whatever, or retired or died or whatever. But um, finally, uh, Tharp was using me as what he called a model trader. So a weekend peak performance seminar would go through and he'd give a lot of technology on trading from the mental side. And he still holds those. And I bet you they're still just as good as they always were because he covers a lot of very important stuff. If you can't handle the mental side of trading, no matter how smart you are at the rest of it, you'll screw it up. So he thought, all right, Tom's got this nice mellow, you know, he, he answers his questions with formulas and with numbers and their specific answers uh, some of his previous model traders, like I, I replaced Ed Sequoia, um, mm. you know, Ed would answer a question with another question, like, uh, what's your, uh, somebody, I remember seeing him, somebody I'll never forget asked, uh, so when you get into a trade, what's your objective? And Ed would say, why do you ask? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was not exactly, you know, it was helpful in an extent and it was funny, but uh, I just go ahead and give him the answer. So uh, it was a good working relationship. Eventually, I got so swamped after New Market Wizards, I could not keep up with it all. I just had to, you know, beg off of Tharp's conferences. But that day mm -hmm. in New Jersey, Tharp was going to hold something. He calls up Jack, and who's over in New York, across the river, says, "Hey, uh, you know, Tom's going to be attending my peak performance seminar. Tell you what, I'll let you come for free." and you can meet him. Okay. So he comes. So the first day we're sitting there, and as it typically happens, whenever I'm speaking anywhere, you go to break, I don't get a break. I'm surrounded by 10 people. Well, Jack is a star too. So he's surrounded by 10 people. So he's listening out of the corner of his ear to what I'm, you know, getting asked and answering and, and he's doing the same thing over on his little circle. And we kind of scrambled to go to the bathroom real quick and get the thing going again. And uh, this happens every single break. And he keeps noticing how many people are around me, just peppering me with questions. And I have answers for them. So he eventually, I don't think he was planning on doing this at all. He apologizes at the morning break on Sunday, he says, Tom, I don't know if you've heard this. I'm doing another book. It's going to be called New Market Wizards. And... Uh, I'd like to interview you. Uh, if you, you could do anything for lunch, no, okay. So we went down to this little Korean restaurant. I'll never forget it. It was a dive. And he hauls out and he's apologizing. He's setting up the tape recorder. He says, I, do you mind if I record this? The hell no, no problem at all. So we go through an hour and I could tell that he wanted to, you know, keep talking and asking me questions for the next two, three hours. And he said, I'm looking at my watch. I go, you know, Jack, I'm supposed to be the main speaker this afternoon. Tharp's going to wonder where I am if I'm not back there in 10 minutes. And we do have to walk down the street. And he, why don't we just give me a call and we'll just continue this over the phone. You can record it there. Oh, okay. So we did that, followed up, did it. He writes it up, sends it to me FedEx and with a note, comes in at 11 o'clock in the morning, says, just review it. Let me know your comments. You get 
complete right to edit the whole thing. So I, uh, I read it during lunch. I call him back at about one o'clock my time. It's only been in my hands like two hours. And I said, yeah, I've got this. Uh, I got the chapter. It, um, it was fun reading it. I read it during lunch. Do you have a copy where you can take down my uh, comment? And he says, yes. And I said, okay, flip to page eight. Down in the second paragraph, you've got a misspelled word in the second sentence. It's this instead of that. And he said, okay. And I could hear the paper was ruffling and he marks it. And he says, what else? I said, that's it. He said, that's it. He said, yeah, that's it. I think you caught the rest of the interview beautifully. You, mm -hmm. in some cases, transcribed a few things I said to make it even more understandable, better than probably I said it. But you caught exactly what I was trying to get across. I have no problems with the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And he, big pause. And he says, Tom, this has been the freakiest chapter. I have no idea whether the editor will be putting it in the book, but I can tell you this, this was the easiest chapter for me to write. You ended up finding one spelling mistake and you didn't change another thing. I've had people refuse to do the chapter after being interviewed, they read it and they say, I don't want it published. Mm -hmm. And I have to kill the, kill the whole chapter. I have other people that have taken what I've written, completely rewritten the chapter and sent it back and say, we want it done this way. He said, your chapter is unaltered and it was so easy to, to run. I don't know if the editor is going to put it in, but I really had a good time meeting you and doing all this. So when he sends me my copy of the book, he writes in the front, out of all the traders I've interviewed, I'd probably most like to model myself after you because I was so relaxed. And he's mm -hmm. caffeinated and you know <laughs> jacked up and, and stressed. And uh, yeah. so that was a fun experience for me. And of course, then... I'm Mr. Serenity forever. And uh, it, it's, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very important chapter, you know, for, for that reason. I mean, this is such a, um, an endeavor that can really get your emotions going, can oh, get yeah. the adrenaline going. And so to, to, yeah. that's a huge feat in my opinion, yeah. to, to, to be able to keep yourself. In. And I'll ask you a little bit more about, you know, uh, the specifics and things like that. Um, you know, it's funny because we, we've interviewed other market wizards and even like um, a lot of the recent ones from the new book. And um, a lot of them say that about Jack, that he captures the essence of the conversation, because that's what I always ask them. Oh, were you pleased with the chapter? And I guess that's part of, you know, uh, what makes Jack so good is he really extrapolates what's important from the conversation. And so shout out to Jack. We've had him on too. Uh, JJ, when we had him on, uh, you know, Tom's description of him being a caffeinated New Yorker. I, I think that probably still rings true to this day. What do you think, Jake? <laughs> It, it is. And, and those are the people that I grew up doing business with. So I miss that. Right. So when there's a, when there's a New Yorker and he's just buzzed and I'm like, Oh yeah, this is great. Right. Yeah. We'll stay up all night and work. Yeah. 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 Sure. Sure. Like when I go to New York, I, I sleep three hours a night because I just get into it, you know? And uh, but you know, after having a heart attack at 44, uh, I've learned now to kind of chill. <laughs> Keep it even. You know, the profits are better when you chill. It's just, you know, you're not forcing things. Well, you know? not only the profits, in my mind, your life is better. Yeah, your life is better. You actually pay attention. Like, you know, you know, the way I always put it, yeah. people, people would uh, ask me this question over and over again. When you're even killed and you take everything flat, how how can you enjoy life? How can you enjoy going to a movie or how do you how do you 
if you're at a party or, you know, whatever. And I, I tell them, you know, you have the human ability to decide to become yeah. excited about something emotional. You can get sad at a funeral. You can get um, you can get happy when you see a comedy. You can go to a party and laugh and do whatever you want to do. But you can also choose to be in a different state and your mental state that you want to be in is your choice. You have the ability to, to control what mental state you are, are in at any point in time. If you work at it, I realize that people that haven't done it as long as I have would probably have a little bit more difficulty. But if I was sitting there over their shoulder, talking to them through it and, and letting them get into mental states, I think I probably could help a lot of people just be even killed during trading. And then mm. the question is, is do you want to ever get excited in trading? Well, probably not. Uh, do you ever want to get excited if you're on a battlefield? Probably not. Yeah. If you could figure out how to do it. You know, there's times when it's, you choose, you know, like if you're in a horror flick and you want to be horrified, <laughs> yeah. you can choose to be horrified mm. or you can sit and withdraw yourself back and say, this is just a movie. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it with my wife. But um, I'm not going to let it get to me or something like that. Well, then kind of, why did you waste the money? Yeah. The point yeah. is to be horrified. Exactly. So I, I think that's what people miss out on the fact that you have a choice in your mental state. And I don't think a lot of people, I think a lot of people let their mental state go wherever it wants to go and life just pushes them around. Also, there is a, there is a, a misappropriate, uh, you know, misinformation about trading. See, I was on the institutional side and I was an order flow jockey. So I'm making markets, pushing order flow, uh, having clients. I'm taught you let the phone ring more than once, you're fired. You're so replaceable. There's 30 speed dials on my phone. It would take nothing to replace you. I haven't, you know, didn't take a holiday since 95, right? So you go from that to retail trading. And, you know, my whole thing was I was influenced by Solomon Brothers, Liars Poker, you wake up every morning ready to bite the ass off a bear. Retail trading is not that. You have to be able to chill and see things because you're not competing for order flow. You're you know, making tactical decisions and you have to be completely different. And I still remember reading. And by the way, this is so cool reading about you back then and actually getting to speak to you now. It's uh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I got to speak to Linda Rashke. She's the reason I got a job. She gave me the idea from reading the book on how to like get a job by the exchange so you could work your way, weasel your way in. And that's what I did in Vancouver. So, you know, it's great to meet, you know, people who, uh, you know, you read about and, you know, they're this sort of like mythical figure and then you finally get to meet them, <laughs> you know, and I still remember when I went on Twitter and I said something to you and you responded and I went, was it ever cool? Tom Basso responded to me, and he said, <laughs> you know, cause like, you know, your whole life is, you know, is your whole identity was the market. You know, I've been doing this since 93. So um, yeah, it's really, well, cool. you know, the nice thing about this, enjoy the ride gig that I just set up the website. It, there's a story on that too. If you want to hear it, we're sitting at sure. a pool in Malaga, Spain with my wife and we're drinking Rosado and it's a beautiful sunny day on a Sunday. And I'm going to go have a meeting with Lawrence Bensdorf the next day, who's a you know really good trader from the Trading Mastery School. He's a, he's a good guy to interview, too. You probably should have him on someday. Uh, he and I do some seminars um, every now and again on trading, and he's, he's a brilliant guy. And um, so I'm sitting there, and I said, you know, Brenda, I've got this problem. I am trying to be helpful. I've been retired like 
I don't know, 16, 15 years at that point. And I get six to eight emails a day from traders. And the other day, two different traders from two different countries asked me exactly the same question. And it took me paragraphs to answer it. And I had to type those two sort of all over again, because the second one came in and um, I'm just answering the question. And it's just a lot of keystrokes, a lot of wasted time. And it's kind of getting, I like helping people, but wouldn't it be nice to automate that somehow so I don't have to spend so much time doing it? And we kicked around a whole bunch of ideas. And then we decided whatever I did would have to be asynchronous because like this morning, I was out planting three bushes in the front yard and running irrigation and all that. I came in, cleaned up and ready to go for this thing. But I enjoy being outside. I might have on a different day tomorrow, I might go out and play 18 holes of golf and come in and do my trading. I do not sit here at the desk all day. And so asynchronous means I can answer the question when I want to do it. So if somebody sends me an email, I can answer it when I get around to it. Could be tomorrow. It works for me. I'm retired. And uh, so we came up with the website and said, hey, if we could collect all of my knowledge base, my research papers, my interviews, the books I recommend, some videos that I produced, the two books that I wrote, uh, we could do a couple of webinars and record those and just be helpful. Then traders can go to that website 24 seven around the world and they can look at all sorts of interesting information without me being involved in it. It just sits there being hosted by odoo.com and away we go. And uh, so literally thousands and thousands of traders now have visited the site and have you know looked at my position sizing book and uh, look you know read my interviews are all free there that's like an entire I don't know how many dozens of hours of interviews uh, I'll put this one up there if you guys will let me and um, you know people can get a lot of information on background and trading and useful tips and tricks sometimes here and there. And, uh, and so I'm helping a lot of people, but I don't have to answer all those emails anymore. Yeah. I still get a few emails, but now again, most of it's messages on Twitter or something. They're usually pretty easy. It's very rare for me to get a, a one that requires a, you know, massive answer. Uh, so that's been good. And yeah. uh, meanwhile, the enjoy the ride pace for itself. I don't have to come out of my pocket to keep the website going. So everybody, everything's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, go check out the website. I, uh, you know, preparing for this podcast, I was looking through it. A great, great website. A lot of great um, interviews, uh, you know, articles, etc. Um, Tom, I was, just, I was just thinking, man. Um, you know, with, with you being, um, you know, so serene, you know, not not riding the roller coaster of emotions. I feel like that's even a bigger feat, um, knowing that you're Italian. I, I feel like we're just, we're very emotional, passionate people uh, by nature. I mean, what, what do you think? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think in general. Uh, and I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, if you've ever been at a, a bus stop in uh, say Florence or something and it, right next to the block, bus stop will always be a little espresso shop. And so at three o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon, people are like taking a transfer from another one bus to another. They rush into the espresso shop, they grab an espresso, they down it and they go out and get into the next bus. I don't know if that has something to do with it or not, but I know when I was in my twenties and I was going through a pot or two of coffee a day, 
and I'm 6'3 and 205, so I can spread it over a lot of body, but uh, man, I was wired. And um, I started becoming more aware of how much that was affecting me somewhere in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And I decided, you know, I'm just going to go decaf. And I, I was decaf wow. for decades. Wow. Nowadays, I'll have like a, a glass of iced tea with lunch if I'm outside and, you know, it's a hot day and I'm with my wife and stuff and I don't have anything particularly, I don't have intense trading that afternoon or I don't have to try to, you know, do something that's potentially stressful. So it's no big deal to me now. I, and I understand how the difference in how I feel. Sometimes mm-hmm. I do it just to remind myself of the way I used to feel so that I Right. caution myself and say, let's stay away from that. But that gave me a lot of uh, peace and a little ability to pull back from a situation. I think discipline in trading and discipline in life, really, whether it be passing up the chocolate cake when you're on a diet or whether it be not doing a stupid trade because you shouldn't, it's not part of your strategy. <laughs> it's you being aware that you're deviating from some plan or some objective that you're striving for. And then correcting yourself back to what you're supposed to be on that path. I think in trading, if you can be aware enough that anything that you're doing is either pushing your button and wanting you to be greedy, wanting you to be nervous, wanting you to be fearful, all those different types of emotions you go through. And then you say, okay, well, wait, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm excited, greedy, fearful, anything else this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I've already got a trading plan. It says I should buy at a stop at this price, that many contracts, period. Just do it. And all of a sudden you're back on plan. And then you realize that you did the right thing. And at the end of the day, Tharp always says, and I totally agree with this beautiful statement. What's a good day of trading? It's a trading day that you followed your plan. It's not whether you made money or lost money. It's whether you followed your plan. So I have a lot of good trading days because I just, I have, I've run eight strategies now across, I don't know, probably right now I'm holding 50 instruments. A lot of it's automated. Some of it isn't. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, when I get done with this interview, I'll go on, pull up my data and run through it. It'll take me about 30 minutes or so. I'll be all set for the next 24 hours after that. And tomorrow, who knows? I might be out golfing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't, isn't that the, the, the great part about, uh, you know, being a systemized trader? Um, I, I, th- I think it, it can really help with the uh, emotions and more just focus on the process. Hey, I made the right decisions. Hey, I followed the system. Whereas I, I think at least some of the people that me and JJ encounter, people who are very like highly discretional traders, is it can really mess with your mind. Um, oh, yeah. and it can be a lot of noise in between trades. And sometimes it's even hard, I think, to review your own trades um, if you're not at least somewhat systemized. Yeah, even if you are a discretionary trader, you would agree with that, Tom? Yeah, I agree. Uh, discretionary trading, the little bit that I've done over my years, uh, was mostly done early in my career. And then I have done some in the last year or two simply to try to create enough experiences so that I could design a trading strategy that would capture those discretionary decisions based on what I was looking at as a discretionary trader. How can I mathematically describe that to a spreadsheet or to a a rule-based? You know, when I say a a systems trader, 
you could go all the way to the computer, which is where Trendstat was. Some of the stuff I do is very, very rule-based and there is no judgment whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it takes me 30 seconds to update that particular strategy because in many days I don't have anything to do. I, I look at the graph, I move a stop, I grab it with my cursor, move it up, I'm done. I move on to the next strategy. So, but it's rule-based. So you could say it's not computerized, but it's rule-based. Well, when it's rule-based and I know what those rules are, why I have them, how to size the positions, everything else is all cookbook. It takes very little time to execute it. The time I spend in trading nowadays might be some morning where I'm, I've got an idea. I just, I don't know, somebody at one of the seminars asked me a good question and I didn't know the answer. And I thought, let's look into that. And I'll do some research, I'll get a spreadsheet going, or I'll do some programming or whatever, and I'll test out some new theory, or I'll try to get a trading platform to help me do that, whatever I can do to to solve the problem. And in that case, I'm using my creative brain, because execution, I don't know if JJ would agree, but when, when you're on a floor, let's say, and you've got order flow coming through, it's, you are in the middle of the noise. And there is really a mentality almost of execute, execute, execute. You just keep going. You go fast. You don't think a lot. You just get it done. And the same is true if you're an off the floor trader, like I always was. But if you're a discretionary off the floor trader, you have a whole lot of time on your hands to screw (laughs) things up and to think of, well, well, maybe I ought to do this. Wow. Look at that. That's interesting. You get distracted, you get emotional. It's so easy. And and because you have all this time, especially when you're looking at me, I'm, I've got trades that I've, I've been in for months now and I'm still in on them. These are futures trades. I mean, I, I'm not in there in the noise buying and selling all day long. So there's a lot of potential for the person to screw it up and to think too much, but rules based keeps you in that sort of, um, uh, a tight plan that if you want to change it, you know, spend lots of time analyzing, thinking it through. If you want to change that tight plan, have a good reason to change it. I'm not saying I, I've never changed a plan or yeah. any of my strategies, but you have to have a real good reason to do that. And you better know what you're doing when you do that, because that's what you're going to run every day from there on in. And when you're actually running it, I mean, that's why I can do eight strategies in like 30 minutes across 50 instruments because it's very cookbooky. It's almost boring. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think when trading gets to the point where it's boring and it's just a money-making operation and you just, it's something you do like brushing your teeth every day. Yeah. I think you've finally mastered it a little bit, you know, yeah, you don't definitely. have to get stressed out. That's the idea, right, JJ? You say that all the time. Oh, geez, definitely. Good trading is, I, you know, because I came from the institutional side and, and yeah. I was raised oh. in, 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 you know, the um, sort of cesspool of this petty stock world. That's where I came from. So, um, you know, we had no discipline, right, at all. So, you know, and when, if I was retail trading in my own account and I took a loss, a market maker would put it up for me because I'm giving them so much order flow. They'd eat 10, 20 grand for me. No problem. Right. So you have no discipline on using stops. You don't, 
you, you know, so that was the biggest thing when I, I, you know, I thought, oh, this retail training, it'll be easy. Yeah, no big deal. Right. You know, and, but when you don't have the order floor, you're not making the market. You're like, oh, oh, I got stopped. Oh, oh, maybe I'm not as, oh, I'm not smart at all. You know, <laughs> and, it, and they're like, oh, discipline. Oh yeah. I've read about that. Maybe it's time I go get some. You know, uh, you know. <laughs> they have they have some today on a special down at walmart exactly <laughs> yeah i i i think um i mean a, gr- a great book i've read recently um by uh daniel can kahneman I, I believe is his name he wrote the book thinking fast and slow uh he won a nobel peace prize for his work in psychology and uh his new book is called noise and i think it's highly applicable for traders to read i suggest for all the listeners um to read it and you know, Tom, he was saying how just having like for, for people who were in prognostication, uh, uh, um, predictive fields, um, I'm missing prognostication, prognostication. There it is. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> That's a multi-syllable word. Prognostication. <laughs> so people in, in prognostication fields, um, you know, it, it depends um, on what you're prognosticating. But oftentimes, and they've done extensive studies on this, that just having simple rules beats having complex rules. Now, when you're dealing with certain things, yeah, having a, like a system with, you know, a lot of different inputs is going to be better than just having simplistic rules. But for things like trading um, and, you know, similar things, just having very simple rule based. So it, it was just cool to see what things like, you know, people like yourself have been saying for a long time for it to be backed up by, uh, you know, academia. So, you know, those if, are if you really people. if you really look at something simple like the SPY, Back when I did the study on this back in 2003, just before we shut down Trendstat, we were trying to get into some automated day trading. Mm -hmm. So I had one of the guys on the computer uh, capture a stream of SPY ticks coming in off the satellite up above my roof. We were measuring 32 to 34 different ticks per second. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now talk about liquidity because I mean, some of these are 10,000 share blocks and you're talking about billions and billions of uh, nowadays, a couple million, a couple hundred million shares traded and really billions in terms of value. So when you have that kind of noise coming through that beyond what the human, you, human brain can't even see the 32 times a second. I mean, your screen would just be blinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, 20 times a second, it would, it would be a blur. 32, it's probably more than that now. This is back in 2003. So what you got to do as a human being, you have a limitation on how much you can derive information and make decisions on noise. And by having some rules that allow you to compress noise into information and say, I'm going to ignore everything from this point to this point. I'm going to dictate that that's noise. But if it gets above this point, I'm going to call it a bull market. If it gets below that point, I'm going to call it a bear market and go short, or I'm going to go get out and go to cash. By having some decisions and allowing yourself to get rid of a lot of the noise, you can then step back and as a human being, make logical, simple decisions and not have to make them like second by second. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said too, yeah, recognizing the limitations of our brain. Um, and that, that's just huge because I think so, you know, some, some people call Clint don't. Eastwood. Man's got to know his limitations. Yeah. yeah Clint Eastwood. 
it's huge. Uh, Tom, I, I want to I want to read a quote from uh, the section of the Market Wizards um, and just kind of you know just talk to it. Um, okay. All right, the quote is: uh, "It's psychologically comforting to construct a system that looks very good in its past performance. Uh, and doing that, you can have conditions that are unrealistically restrictive." Uh, and then you go on this too to say how you try and keep the model as flexible as possible. How does one leave flexibility in their models? All right. Uh, thanks to Jack Schwager on this one. Jack uh, always used a term with me. He called degrees of restriction. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> let's make a simple example. Um, if we were to, at the end of every day, flip a coin, heads, we went long, SPYs. We then trailed it with, a, a, let's say, a two times average true range stop loss point. And we trailed it and moved it up. If we bought it and the market went our way, we'll just keep trailing the stop and we make a bunch of money on the trend. If it goes against us and hits the stop, we stop out. And the next afternoon, we flip the coin again. If it's tails, we're going to go short. And we'll put the stop two ATRs above. Now, every time we get a major move, we're going to make money. Every time it doesn't go anywhere, we're going to lose, but we're going to lose very little because our stop is tight. So it's going to be let your gains run, cut your losses short. How many variables are in that strategy? There would be the flip of the coin. That's one variable because that's going to either go heads or tails. That's one. And the second one is going to be where we place the stop and we've got a uh, an ATR, average true range. So we have to pick a number of days. So let's say 21 days. That's one variable. So now we're up to two, right? We got the heads and heads and tails, and we got the uh, we got the 21 days for the ATR, and we got a 2.0 times the ATR stop. So that would be a third factor in the uh, the whole system. So you got three numbers or items that are going to be into that entire strategy. That strategy would tend to make a small amount of profit over a very long period of time. It turns out. I wouldn't trade it because it's a flip of a coin. I mean, come on, we could do better than that, we think. Mm -hmm. However, it points to the fact that if you keep something very simplistic and just run it mindlessly, the computer would say that you probably are going to eke out a profit over the long run. Now let's examine what happened to one of my partners back in the old days at the registered investment advisory firm before I sold and got out. I come back from a trip and I was talking to clients and all that. And I said, Hey, uh, are we long the mutual funds? Cause we were timing mutual funds and he had taken this book and he had written down the simple strategy. And then he found that if we added this filter to the strategy, that would be better. And then if this happens, that happens. And he's got all these rules and he's just writing, writing pages now. And he says, no, we're not long. And I said, huh, I thought we would have been long. Get your book out. So, um, he starts going through and he says, okay, well, first you get this indicator. And I said, okay, yeah. And that's in our favor. And then you do this filter. And I said, I would have thought the filter would be giving you the, the buy signal too. And he looked at it and says, yeah. And then we flipped the page. And then he says, now you look at this and he goes and it's page after page. And we get down to the last item and he says, and then this, and I said, so doesn't that mean we should be long now? And he says, Oh crap. I missed the trade. 
It was so complicated. He didn't even couldn't execute it. Okay. Now, what that is an example is, is the opposite extreme. Instead of three, we've got so many different variables over so many different time periods, so many different instruments have the, the markets got to agree to buy this mutual fund. You got to have the S and P doing that. Oh my gosh. You got to have interest rates going down you, Oh my goodness. You get all that done. You'll be hard pressed to even have a trade even if you could figure out how to do it, because to have all those conditions come to pass might be once every 10 years. I mean, you might have 100% reliability, but you'll never do a trade. That's useless. It's, non -re it's too restrictive. And so Jack coined the term degrees of restriction, because the more variables you have in a trading strategy, the more restrictive it is in being able to react to the world around us because the world's always changing. You'll never see a one day crash of 1987, October 19th, again, 23% down in one day or whatever it was, you know, that was a unique one day and it happened and it's in the historical databases. And if you ran simulations through that day, you would get whatever you would get but you're never gonna get exactly that same thing again. There wasn't as many computers back then as there are now. Yeah. Flash crashes could be far more severe than they used to be. Now we have circuit breakers kicking in. There's all sorts of other weird stuff that constantly is changing. So, you know, in terms of fighting the battles, you don't wanna be fighting the last battle, you wanna be fighting the next one. So you gotta keep yourself flexible and, and think outside the box and, keep things, realize that you don't have to fine tune a simulation to the 10th of a decimal point. It'd be better to just understand roughly what you're going after and capture the lion's share of that big move coming up and not worry about whether you got in today or tomorrow. If you're getting in on a move that's going the next three months, you don't have to worry about whether you get in exactly now or two hours later. It's not that big of an important thing because the lion's share of the profit's going to be made over the next three months. Yeah. So that's what people miss. I think they want to, everybody obsesses over buy or sell engines to the point where they're trying to make them perfect. You know, I want to make sure every trade's profitable. If I could do it, it's, you don't have to be, I, I mean, over my lifetime, I was probably 33% reliable, but yeah. profitable 60, two thirds of my trades were losers over my lifetime. Yeah. And, and that's all you people need. to understand that. And, and that's all you need. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, Tom. I mean, we're in episode 70. We've talked to a lot of traders and a lot of world-class traders. And so many of them echo that as well as that, like, I don't even win most of my trades. I win 25% of my trades. I win 30% of my trades, you know. Um, and, but that's hard for, I think, people to wrap their brains around. It's very, it's very counterintuitive. Um, but, the marketing. Yeah. Uh, the, the marketing done to the retail trading mindset. Sure. Uh, gives the impression that you're not supposed to take losses. But if anybody who's actually worked in the business, right? I mean, if you look at some of the marketing, I mean, I have to say it because be irresponsible not to, uh, you know, oh yeah, you know, three easy setups and look at me and my Ferrari, you know? <laughs> so it's, you know, people have unrealistic expectations and a lot of people will think though, like, oh yeah, trading is a, uh, Oh, uh, what is it? It's passive income. I'm like, no, no, no. This is some of the hardest money you're ever going to work for. <laughs> right. You have no idea how hard this is. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and I come from both sides of the street where I had 300 million shares to move, create a market, sell it into, I'd build the chart. 
You know, I went from making candles to now trying to figure out what the heck this means. Right. And, <laughs> you know, that's why I'm a market profile guy with Jim Dalton. I mean, I just, yeah. you know, I saw that and I was like, Oh, I can't, you know, he's like, you know, the guys who taught me. So, you know, he's like, you know, that ex Marine, you know, tough and, you know, like, listen, you know, this is what you do. And so I fell into that and, uh, Thank goodness, because uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's really it's misconstrued, <laughs> you yeah. know. You know. Yeah, a lot of floor traders, I think, over time, love the market profile stuff because it gets into levels, and that's oh, the yeah. way the, the floor trader tends to think. And you can see the inventory, right? Yeah. We're all about inventory, right? Yeah. You know, I never, I never was on the floor in my life except yeah. as a tourist. So, yeah. uh, I think I was on the Merck floor one time. Uh, you know, one of the conferences up in Chicago, and yeah. it was fun. You know, I did the mock trading thing. I sucked at it. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. And yeah. uh, you know, for me, I'm a data cruncher for the computer. I, oh, yeah. you know, you were talking about you were. Uh, if uh, you didn't answer the phone call in one trade, you're going to be fired, replaced. Yeah. The first you are trade. replaced now. Yeah. It's all computerized. Oh, no I know. Floors. I know. I, I sit here. I remember back when I first started in futures, I'd call Heinold. If you remember them back in the old days and I call my broker there, he puts it to a back cage, the cage yep. teletypes it, the teletype <laughs> gives it to a runner. The runner takes it out, hands it to the guy in the pit. The guy in the pit does his fancy hand signals. Yeah. He writes it up to some other guy on the other side of the pit and I hope they got their badges right. Drops it on the floor. <laughs> Somebody crawls on the floor, gets the it ticket, takes, takes it ticket. back to the person on the edge of the pits yeah. who has to teletype it back to St. Louis back in those days. Wow. And then I get a call from my broker about a half an hour later saying that, I filled this one corn contract. <laughs> Nowadays, I, I turn over here to my other screen and I hit a couple mouse clicks. Yeah. And by about the time I have turned my head to go back to my emails, I get a blip and it's already yeah. confirmed over here. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I was starting just when the floors were ending and I was I was one of the guys who uh, yeah, I was on a Canadian desk trading yeah. uh, U.S. order flow. Um, and, um, so that was, that was my thing. And it was, it was all dealing with the wholesalers out of Jersey city, you mm -hmm. know, uh, of, of the time. And, uh, it was a great experience, but it completely not what, you know, retail trading and, and oh, yeah. doing that is, is, and being, you know, I, and managing portfolios, like I'm doing a thing now where I'm trying to teach people how to swing trade using profile. And, you know, I'm in a trade and I'm swinging the thing. And if I have to hold something for more than 40 seconds, I'm getting itchy. I'm like, I feel like, what am I, Warren Buffett? What is this? You know, it's like, I got to hold it overnight. Ugh. You need to go you know? on blood pressure medicine or something. <laughs> I know. It's like, I have trouble holding stock when it's given to me for free, let alone when I pay for it. Well, and you I know? maintain, you know, if you look at a lot of people ask me, I get all these strange questions from people, but um do you think volatility has gotten greater? And I said, oh yeah, it sure has. But it's totally normal because if you think about like 1973, 74, which may be earlier than both of you, I think mm -hmm. at your ages, but I'm 69 the other day. So I remember it vividly. Uh, 73, 74, the Standard Poor's 500 was down 50% over those two years. Wow. So it, it took two years to do that. Well, in 2008, we were down 50%. How long yeah. did it take to do it then? Yeah. A year, nine a months. Year. I don't know. Something like that. How about the COVID crash? Was it 35% in about six, six weeks? Months? Yeah, it was crazy. Why you is know? that? Well, well, because we can trade 
a billion shares of stock through the exchanges now when the end of 74, I vividly remember I get the Wall Street Journal, and if they did 10 million, it was black headlines <laughs> that the New York Stock Exchange hits 10 million. I mean, they were breaking open the champagne, the floor traders, yeah. for handling 10 million shares. shares yeah. Now we do a billion a day, and it's they don't blink. Yeah, and so when you do that, you're compressing time periods down, yeah, and executing true. the same psychological profile from euphoria at the high to depression at the low. You're doing it in six weeks instead of two years because you're you're not doing all this stuff by hand anymore. People want to make a trade; they just turn to their computer, they make it. Yeah. They they had they go through all the same emotions they used to go through. They're just doing it at like ten times or a hundred times the speed that they used to. So it looks like it's more volatile. And I suppose mathematically it is, but the same things are happening. They're just happening in different time periods. Do you, uh, quick question uh, yeah. for, you know, swing trading, how are you finding swing trading in this crazy market where the selling just shuts off and it's not really that liquid because you see, you know, look at the positions like Apple and things like that. They're warehoused by these money managers. So well, swing trading encompasses to me a fair variety of different ways that you could go about that. Uh, If you were trying to swing trade and actually do what I would call more of a mean reversion swing trade, Mm -hmm. where you're trying to pick, uh, say, in your case, market profile levels, and you're Mm going to say, when it gets up to here, I'm going to sell it at a limit, I'm going to buy it at a limit down at the low part of the range, or vice versa, buy Mm -hmm. it low, sell it high, whatever. That's one way of sort of thinking through swing trading. You could also do it with price resistance levels. Um, Mm -hmm. Anything from GANs, Fibonacci's, just based, uh, just just X's and O's, point and figure charts. You could do a lot of different ways to find those levels, high and low, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to just pick up the difference. Uh, Another approach to swing trading could be uh, what I would call very short-term trend following. So what you do there, is you'd set up an overbought, oversold indicator like a stochastic or an oscillator of some sort, RSI stochastic, things like that. And you would measure whether the market or that instrument was overbought or oversold. Let me get rid of this. Um, Excuse me for that. Uh, And what you could do is from that oversold position, you know the market is now oversold, you could set up a very, very short-term trigger that would be a trend-following model. So you could actually buy on a stop as it comes out of that oversold position and and then try to pick up the swing that way. You might not be picking up the extremes of the swing, but you'd be picking up the middle part of the swing with a trend-following model. And you'd have the odds a little bit more on your side from the overbought, oversold condition. And you'd have a very handy stop to put in if it just continued to go through your level and go against you. So you could take a small loss, try to get uh, a multiple R trade, You know, maybe make two or three times what your average loss is. And you could probably get your reliabilities up in the, you know, maybe 40, maybe even 50 if you somehow figured that out. But I wouldn't think you'd get it too much higher than that, statistically speaking. But that's another viable way. And for me as a trend follower that I've been all my life, that type of swing trading is much more comfortable to me because I I understand trend following and it's my mentality. 
trying to put a limit out in the middle of some place and watching the price come to my limit and just go right through it and keep going. Oh, yeah. That's just not my thing. I, well, I and, have a hard time mentally with that one, but. And with these ranges, you know, there's enough meat on the bone in between yeah. the high and the low. There's, yeah. With the volatility being yeah. so much more you know, over such a t- uh, smaller time fer- period, as long as you can measure the overbought oversold condition over the shorter term time frame, and then set up a sort of a quick trend following. I mean, I might be in a position, I got one where if I'm sitting here at the desk all day, I'm trading intraday using five minute bars and I do it while I'm working. It mm-hmm. takes me a glance once every five minutes over to the chart, moving you know, with my cursor and then I'm done and I go back to work for another five minutes. And I'm probably running about 50, maybe 52% reliable on it. It doesn't make uh, you know, enough money to make a difference in my life. It, it helps the portfolio when I do it. Uh, but I don't change my plans. If I feel like golfing, I'd rather go play golf than make a couple thousand dollars over here on the, on the uh, screen. Uh, it's not worth my time. What we do is with our folks is we trade them. We first teach them to trade for income. So that's a wonderful thing that you're, you know, we really thank you for that. Yeah. 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 The, the, the shorter the time frame, the lower the risk usually is to your stop losses. And, I think a lot of smaller portfolios, traders starting out, if they have the time and if they have the mentality and want to try to do it, if they can stick to the shorter term, that helps them be able to put a position on and still control the risk. Doing what I do over some periods where I'm holding positions for three months, four months, five months, two years, some cases, um, that's going to have a bigger risk per, uh, per unit. And therefore, I'm going to have to have a smaller position uh, to cover that risk. I, I don't want my risk to get big, just like everybody. I, mean, I want to keep exactly. my risk under control. So I'm going to have a smaller position, but because I have a larger portfolio than a lot of people, it still is fine for me. And I, hell, I'm retired. So I'm not looking mm-hmm. to, you know, exactly. I think last year I did over 100% return. That was completely by accident thanks to COVID. It had nothing to do with me trying to push the envelope. And I mean, I caught the downswing in COVID. I caught the upswing in COVID recovery and, uh, and both sides were extremely profitable and it all compounded um, this year and most years. That was the best year of my life. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if I never see that return again. Wow. I'm happy with a 10% year. I don't, mm-hmm. It's okay for me. It doesn't yeah. change my life. Yeah. 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 Uh, isn't that kind of how uh, I guess kind of like speaking to to trading and even maybe even individual trades, Tom? It, sometimes like the best ones are uh, just following your system. It's not like you planned on making a hundred percent, right? It just you you stuck oh. to your rules, you stuck to your system, and it just worked out that way. And you know, a lot of CTAs last year, I've heard through the grapevine, got into the COVID crash, maybe had a little bit of a drawdown, or made a ton of money even. And then they got down to the bottom and they say, oh my God, the world's ending. You know, this whole thing is insane. And now we're, you know, we're locking down the economy. We're doing all this stuff. I'm just going to discretionarily step in and forget all my rules and not follow anything and just go to cash. And they missed the entire upswing because they were sitting there waiting for the W bottom. We're going to test the bottom sometime. No, it didn't test, did it? It just went straight up. Yeah. yeah. And I just followed my strategy and it hit the crazy buy signal. And I said, okay, here we go. This will be fun. <laughs> and it ended up being insanely profitable. And wow. all I did was just 
the same thing I'm going to do this afternoon after this interview. Just going to sit down with my data, go through my 30 minutes, do the same exact thing I always do. Yeah. And uh, I think when people let their emotions override what is a well-oiled plan, it's just it's lots of ways it can go bad. And then what are you doing? Then you're kicking yourself. Then you're saying, mm -hmm. oh, God, I missed it. Or if you're a CTA, your clients are saying, how come we're missing it? Exactly. And they're all over your back. And, uh, oh, my God, that's a terrible road to go down. Uh, terrible, terrible. Like I, I, I remember, I remember during this time, JJ, I remember I was talking with you. I think I was, I was talking with Steve as well. Shout out to Steve. He's at beyond the trades. Um, during that whole move, we're like, man, like people sitting on the sidelines, you're missing this whole, you know, to just see, oh, yeah. you know, what a time to miss, you know, and then you're kicking yourselves afterwards. And I feel like that's even worse of an emotion to even deal with. Uh, oh, definitely. But, but you, you know, know, I mean, yeah, we, we started, I remember after that big move up, um, and it started moving up, the 13 F started coming out and I told one of my buddies, go check the 13 Fs and see if these, you know, these, uh, Mastodon type money managers came out of any paper, right? Cause that's my whole thing is supply, right? Where's the supply? Yeah. Oh, it's still locked up. BlackRock didn't sell any. They sell 10 million shares of Apple. Big deal. Get on the bid. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, cause they're, these guys are warehousing stock. I mean, I, I kind of picture BlackRock where you have all these stock certificates in a crypt, you know, covered with about six inches of dust, you know, and you know, they would be the market. They are not, you know, they are not investing or trading in the market. No, they exactly. Are the market. exactly. Right. <laughs> the $9 trillion. That's yeah. That's insane. That's, that's, I, I have a hard time getting my hand, my head around that. It, it's that's a too many zeros. And their, and their Aladdin algorithm thing is, you know, it's, that whole server farm is in some apple orchard in Wenatchee, Washington, you know, which is the most, un I've been there. It's the most unlikely place that you'd ever, you'd ever think, you know, interesting, yeah. fascinating company. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Tom, they got to do what they do. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned you're, you're, you're 69 years old. What, what, what's the secret, man? Good diet exercise. This is that wine oh, you're well. making. What is it? I, it's a combination of a lot of things. I would say, uh, it's keeping your stress levels down and being even killed like I am. Mm -hmm. I think being happy and having a good life uh, mm -hmm. gives you something to look forward to every day when you wake up. I'm always excited to wake up. Uh, and uh, even though, I mean, today uh, my job was pulling out some roots from an old bush that I was taking out and putting in three new bushes in the place of that. And I've really dressed up my front here at the mountain home uh, in Arizona. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that when I wake up. That's one thing. The second thing is I make sure my nutrients, I, uh, I've been keto for about six years now, lost 20 pounds, uh, work out, uh, you know, mostly cardio stuff. A lot of stuff I'll do in the pool. Uh, I love a pool cardio because uh, you're pushing against water and it's very forgiving to your muscles. So you don't get the soreness the next day you get from lifting weights. So that's kind of fun. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, enjoying golf, but walking the golf course instead of riding if I can. So in the Valley where I golf, I, I always walk and push my cart. Um, uh, diet uh, with the keto means I'm a little higher on fat. I have enough protein to feed my muscles and I keep uh, down on the carbs. Uh, my blood sugars come in extremely normal. My cholesterol is below 200. Uh, if I have fat, it's stuff like olive oil, virgin olive oil. So it's 
It's healthy fat for you, monosaturated fat. So those are good things. Um, take a few uh, life extension type pills, give a little add to life extension. Uh, so lifeextension.com, you can see a lot of very helpful nutrients. So if you're, if you get a blood test on your micronutrients and you feel like you're down in anything, uh, for example, um, COVID supposedly doesn't do well if you have a very high vitamin D level, mm. but you can overdose on vitamin D. So you don't want to have too much. So you want to have enough, but you don't want to have too much. Well, we did a blood test and I was a little low in vitamin D. So we've bumped up a uh, little vitamin D3 tablets that I take every morning to get my Im immunity system up as high as I can. So things like that, just making some intelligent decisions and being a little disciplined. Uh, you know, wine has flavonoids, I think it is, and that's supposed to be good for you. And I enjoy my wine, uh, but I don't uh, try to overdo it. During the week, usually I rarely uh, uh, drink any alcohol, uh, but Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, it's the weekend. Uh, I relax and uh, go to parties and have fun and invite people over for dinners and we have a good time. Awesome. Uh, so those things all lead to together to a sort of a, I don't know, an enthusiasm for life. And I think it keeps you young, keeps you uh uh, striving to get through another day and enjoying the day and taking enjoyment in meeting people and, you know, things like this. I, two new friends over the web here uh, and a whole bunch of other people that'll probably watch this. So just kind of fun. Uh, try to, try to make life fun. Don't make it a drudgery. Don't sit there and do things that you don't want to do every day. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I, I love it. Yeah. I, I've, I've always been a believer, a believer too, Tom, that the, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a whole, you know, with trading, like a lot of times people think you can just turn your disc, like you can be, you can be undisciplined in your everyday life and then just automatically maybe discipline in your trading. I, I don't really think there's a distinction. And so br bringing that, that, that respect for your life and your health, et cetera, that will translate over into your trading. And, and I know JJ, you, you started keto, what, about a year ago and you've seen good results as well, right? Yeah. Ever, you know, I, I, um, you know, my girlfriend put me on this thing and, uh, <laughs> well, she's like, you on it. She didn't an, have any choice in it. No, no, no. I mean, well, she's an <laughs> anesthesiologist and she's an MD PhD and I'm just, you know, a poke in the eye, you know, trader. So, uh, I mean, I, that's my education, poke them in the eye and hit the bid. That's all I know. So, you know, she put me on this and, uh, I feel great. You know, it's really, you know, your, your blood sugar is down. Your especially me. Cause I had a quintuple bypass, you know, yeah, at, especially. Uh, you know, at 44. So, yeah. you know, that's, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, when you're, when you're working for people who, you know, expect you to, you know, be on call 24 hours a day and, you know, yeah. get their back and call. And Tell me about it. I traded you know? currencies. Oh God. That, trades, so when you had a computer next to you. You, did you have one next to your a screen next to your bed or <laughs> no, I didn't, but I've no. heard of guys that were in the business with me that yeah. did have screens down on the floor next to their bed yeah. and they'd have it on and they'd wake up at two o'clock to go to the bathroom <laughs> and they'd see what the Deutschmarks were doing or whatever. No, no. I, I would get, if my head trader, uh, George was out on a Sunday night, frequently, usually with a brand new newbie on the desk in Japan, I would get a call <laughs> something like, ah, oh, Mr. Basso, uh, your stop order on uh, Deutschmarks uh, 1.2356. Uh, do you want us to fill when it hits that or when the ask is at it? 
And oh. I would say just if it trades there, do it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make any difference. And I, I think they just wanted to see if they could call me and talk to me or something. But for me, it'd be like two o'clock my <laughs> night. It's wake up. Like, Why are you calling me? I was asleep. Uh, but, you know, I don't have that anymore. Yeah, no, that's 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 good. It's uh, I, I only trade the the e mini, and uh, I, you know, it, I find it relaxing trading it after, you know, uh, making markets in Nasdaq stock. <laughs> yeah, for, you know, for I would think it'd be a lot easier. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, was, uh, that, that was pretty good uh, imitation there, Tom. Uh, that was, yeah, well, <laughs> I, that was fairly good. It, yeah. it happened enough to where I could remember the. The voice and uh, the yeah. inflections and stuff. And, but and when you were talking, that my my head immediately went to the first chapter of Victor Niederhofer's book, um, uh, "The Old Man in the Yen." Um, I don't know if you've read that chapter, but it's I, I love that chapter of his book. And he's you know he's trading currencies and he hasn't slept in three days, and you know, <laughs> and he's he's down and you know. And his CD player is broken, but he, he's too cheap to buy a new CD player because he's down in the position, you know, even though it's just like 50 bucks. It's just like, I mean, Friday afternoon, New York would like us to get the orders in maybe a little early. So we'd run them maybe out here in Arizona. We'd run it maybe twelve thirty, one o'clock. And I would be on the golf course up in the mountains an hour and a half away by three. Nice. Playing nine holes before dinner. Oh, that's we would, uh, you know, when we shut down, we, we pretty much for the weekend, Sunday night would come in and uh, everything would start all over again <laughs> in Japan. Mm-hmm. All so, right, Tom, I got, I, got a, I got a few more questions for you. I, mean, yeah, no worries. I feel like we could talk to you, you know, all, all evening here. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, uh, another part um, of the, the Market Wizard section that, that struck out to me when, when you were talking about the Observer you know, observing yourself from the outside. Um, it's, it's really the first thing that struck me. It's a, that's really like a Buddhist type teaching. Is that something that was influencing you or these principles were just something that kind of you've naturally stumbled upon? Uh, no, I stumbled on it in high school initially uh, because I was a nerd beyond belief. Uh, I love Star Trek. Uh, you know, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved engineering. I love math. I love chemistry. I love physics. So came time to get up in front of a, an English class of about 20 people, most of whom I had gone to school with most of my life. I knew them that long. And they had to get up and do their book report just like I did. And I was, my hands were shaking. I could hardly function. Mm. And I went home that night and I was just, you know, rattled and kind of just, you know, just disappointed in myself and embarrassed and, you know, all the different emotional things. And I kept playing back the tape in my brain of what it looked like for me to look out into the the classroom and what it looked like for me to look down and see my hand shaking, holding the piece of paper that I was reading from. And so there was this sort of feedback about that's not a good thing. Why am I doing that? So that was not real time. That was playing it back at night after the whole day. And I I started from that point on sort of playing back a tape of the day late at night. I guess I'm going to bed or something. I'd say, okay, what happened today? Significant. And what did that feel like? What did it look like? What could I have done better? You know, there was this kind of feedback loop going on. Well, as I got into playing basketball in college, I was calling out defenses 
for a two on two matching zone. And I was in the back right side. And so I'm yelling out, Hey, Gary, there's a guy behind you, Barry, watch it to your left, you know, Durf go out and get the guy in the corner and I'll, you know, and I'm slipping in behind him to, to feed the zone. And uh, so I'm yelling that out. I've got to keep track real time of people going behind me because I don't have anybody calling out for me. I'm back at the baseline. So they're sneaking around behind me or they're hanging out back there. And I know they came in one side, I was one, of my, one side of my vision. They didn't come out the other side. So they're still back there. I'm keeping track of all this real time. And I'm starting to, at that point, get a little bit more uh, real time observer self. Mm-hmm. So I, I, there's the part of my brain that now has to, as an observer, watch Tom do what he does. And there's the other part that actually has to get Tom to do what he does. So for example, I'll do it in front of the screen here. Part of my brain can, can say, this would be great to emphasize this point, to use my Italian hands and talk with my hands like I usually do. Or, you know, you're overdoing that, Tom, just keep your hands sort of like together like that. And it looks more peaceful. You're a little less excited looking. You look more like Mr. Serenity. So one part of my brain is looking at what do I look like? And then the other part of my brain is actually carrying on the conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds, I don't know, psychotic or something, but really what ends up happening is very useful because if you can see yourself doing what you do, you can do all sorts of things like avoid that chocolate cake when you're on a keto diet because yeah. you see yourself wanting to go and grab that piece of cake and the observer self says, wait a second, that's not with the program. What are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. and letting you see that stuff or, mm-hmm. Hey, that's not part of your trading strategy. What the heck are you doing? Yeah. And so um, it's very useful. And I th- I'd say now the observer self is no longer an observer self. It's sort of like an aware awareness level. It used to, I used to think of it as two parts of my brain, keeping track of what I was doing. One, one part keeping track and the other part doing it. Now it's sort of like just an awareness that's there all the time. I've done it for so many years. It's real time. And it's just, unless I'm highly caffeinated or <laughs> have had too much to drink, like wine wise or something, <clears throat> I just have that awareness going all the time. I'd, I'd have to chemically uh, knock out my awareness with, you know, anesthetics or, you know, if I'm going into a surgery or, I'd have to, it'd have to be something artificial to knock that guy out. Otherwise he's there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I've definitely been, um, I definitely probably talk with my hands a little bit too much. I have a little bit of an excitable nature. That was funny. That was making me laugh, Tom. That's great. Sometimes it's good to emphasize a point. (laughs) It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, You know, because I'm that 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 really that 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 observer self. uh, That's what really struck me is like, man, like uh, maybe being like one of the keys to like your success. I think that's huge, and and for you to just stumble upon that like early on. I mean, obviously, there's probably other things as well, but that's probably a huge component of it because I think most people. Um, I know it's hard for me and it's something I've really had to practice um, just bringing that awareness um, or just like learning ourselves and like stepping back and seeing how we make decisions, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I can't remember the name of the book, but I think I read a book somewhere along the way. I started feeling like observing myself and I somewhere along the way, I think I found a book on 
observing self or something. I, I can't remember. And I don't remember the author or the name of the book, but you might do some searches on uh, yeah. the term observer self. And uh, there you may get some ideas there. Absolutely. Great, great. All right. Yeah, it just moves you along the path a little quicker. But in moving along the path, it was just sort of an evolution. And I would say by the time I was probably 28 to 30 years old, I was pretty much doing it all the time. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Tom, well, do you have any thoughts um, around cryptocurrency? Has this been something you've looked into? Yeah. Yeah, I've looked into it a little bit. And I certainly don't think it's ready for prime time as much as some people do. Uh, I don't think it's for starters, a currency. I don't think at all that it'll ever short term wise Mm -hmm. be used to. uh, (laughs) And I remember saying this during one of the seminars, my wife said, Oh, you got to use that line again. So thank you, Brenda, for reminding me to do that. Um, If you go to the uh, produce section of the grocery store and you buy a bunch of Brussels sprouts and you walk from there straight to the cashier, the price of those Brussels sprouts would have changed dramatically if you're buying them in Bitcoin. So (laughs) you're not going to be able to, how the heck is the grocery store ever going to be able to price their products if they expect you to pay for them in, you know, Bitcoin somehow. I mean, you do it in dollars maybe, and then translate it to paying it in Bitcoin. I don't know, but it's just not ready for prime time there. It's got to be a lot more stable than it is. Secondly, the whole uh, sort of cost of transaction, the bid bid ask spreads are uh, fairly significant and the cost of doing some of the trades are significant enough to where, yes, there's enough movement to make a lot of money despite those costs. And, uh, and I'm in on a trade on the future side, which is the way I would play it. Uh, I, I use the micro uh, futures on the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. They have a Bitcoin future and they also have a micro Bitcoin future. Mm-hmm. So you can dial it in at a fairly small level. You don't have to be a gazillionaire. And uh, I think I'm in at, uh, let's see, what is it? 34,000 something. And it's up in the 47s now. So I'm doing nicely on the trade and I'm moving up my stops. My stops are at a profit now, but I have no, no idea whether those stops will be respected at whatsoever. I have no idea what kind of <laughs> fill I'm going to get. Exactly. Good news and bad news is if it goes to 100,000, it won't change my life. And if it goes <laughs> to zero, it won't change my life. So it's a nice experiment and I'm getting some education in how the futures on Bitcoin does. But I don't, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, got the volatility to be profitable trading it. So I look at it as a trading instrument only. It's no different than buy and sell in gold, silver, Mm -hmm. live cattle, or anything else out there. You know, euros, it it goes up, it goes down. You can buy it, sell it. It's, I, I don't think it has any intrinsic value for those folks who think it's going to be the inflation hedge of the next century. My answer to that would be, is it will if everybody treats it that way? And if they don't, it won't. You know, gold could be an inflation hedge. Bitcoin could be an inflation hedge or toilet paper could be an inflation hedge. They they all have sort of equal probability of possibly being an inflation hedge. I just don't see uh, 
you know, it's gone a long ways towards getting to where it needs to be, but I think it's got a lot, a lot of distance to go to, to really become what we pay for the groceries with. Yep. Yep. And, yep. and what did you kind of think of uh, earlier this year when we saw the whole, um, you know, like GameStop, AMC, like, like the, the, the real, you know, heavy, like retail activity, you know, going bonkers. My, what were your thoughts? My initial reaction to that was if I was back in the business still, the SEC, if I had done that yeah. to those stocks, would probably be investigating me the next day that it it smacks of just, I don't know, stock manipulation. It's crazy. It does. I, uh, I completely, I have to agree What? because back, back in the old days, my clients would go, Hey kid, you know, you know, cause we used to do things like direct mail to get entice people to, to buy stocks and faxing and all of that stuff. I probably you know, hey, received some of your letters. Oh, oh dear God. You probably did. We got Jack's one of Jack Schwager's guys pretty good. Um, but the thing is, I, I swear to God, it's, we used to think of these mechanisms to bring retail in where you'd actually have so much retail buying, you'd run out of stock to sell, right? And when I saw that and I'd say, this thing's trading like $8 billion worth of paper a day. You know, I could, I could come into that market, take 30% of that, and nobody would even know I was there. You know, if, if you were a net seller, you know, if you had a yeah. position, these guys, I, I don't know, somebody made a lot of money on those deals. Yeah, they do. But I thought stock manipulation was sort of frowned on by the SEC. I don't well, know. Maybe I, I don't not know. so much anymore. It's, Maybe they're on holiday or they're all well, trying to get, they're all trying to get kill the shorts. Let's or, let's all get together and uh, collude with each other and then yeah. kill these other guys over here and we'll have a battle and see who wins. Well, well I don't know. It seems a little, I don't know. Shorting's not as much fun. <laughs> I mean, ever since they introduced Reg Show in 2005, shorting's not nearly as much fun as it used to be. You know? <laughs> so I guess I guess probably the the problem um, with this whole thing is, uh, with SEC is like like who do they pin down? Like there's not like just one person. It's it's like a forum of of people. Exactly. I mean, I don't know. I mean, a I'm brilliant not... way to get around the rules. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Exactly yeah. right. It's it, it's yeah. like when the, it's like in those uh, those old spy movies where they route the phone call from in between 20, 30 different countries. Yeah. Right. Good luck yeah. trying to trace it. Right? Yeah. Exactly. You know. You know. I whatever. I I mean, uh, I <laughs> you know? didn't trade in it. I I did have a friend who was running a purely system, uh, completely computerized. I mean, he literally. It runs without, it's the run starts without him even pushing a button. It mm -hmm. starts automatically based on a time clock. Mm -hmm. He was running and he got some uh, GameStop that came into some of his momentum models that okay. were trend following. Obviously, GameStop had the momentum. It was like probably number one in momentum <laughs> in the whole place with all the, the hundreds of percent. So he, he gets a signal, he goes in on it, he trails it with a stop. He has no clue. He doesn't, he might not even know he owned it for a few days. And then he <laughs> saw all this news on it and he's looking at his returns. His returns are pretty good. So he drilled down into the positions and he got, Oh crap, I own this stuff. I mean, that's <laughs> so even system traders could get out on the action and you yeah. wouldn't, you know, not necessarily you're following mm -hmm. your strategy, you're doing your thing, but oh, you know, yeah. you're just going along for the ride and it, and it turns out all this, outside motivation and manipulation is going on to try to make it happen. I don't know. Yeah. Kind of strange. I didn't uh, get into AMC or GameStop and 
don't yeah. care one way or the other. Right. Yeah. Neither did I. No, that, that must have been a pleasant surprise, though, for your friend. Um, uh, you know, yeah. looking at it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it kind of helped make his year. It was. Uh, it was sure. a good, good push to the portfolio. I'm sure. I'm sure. Tom, you're the author of two books. Yeah. Panic proof investing, and then you self-published one, the the frustrated. Well, it, well, no, I actually had another one. Frustrated okay. investor, it turns out, is my version self-published okay. of panic proof investing. So when Wiley and mm. Sons did the contract with me, they wanted me to add one more chapter, which I did, and then we added an appendix and we embellished a few things, and uh, and we call it. And for some reason, they wanted to call it panic proof investing. I thought frustrated investor was a whole lot better title, but. Uh, it was their publisher uh, and editors that decided to do that. So that was more for retail investors that are hiring money managers or going and buying mutual funds or going working with their stockbrokers, trying to understand what constitutes the investing process, what makes sense to keep you out of arbitration with your broker, you know, and all that stuff. I, I've been witnesses in arbitrations and nobody has any fun. The broker doesn't have fun and the clients that got scammed or manipulated don't have fun either. A lot of money wasted, time wasted, a lot of angst. You don't need to do that if you pay attention to setting things up correctly. So I tried to write that book to help the retail investors. The second book was one I did more recently and my wife had, uh, uh, she had had uh, some injury to her shoulder when she was golfing. So her left shoulder, she had to have surgery. So we, she was in rehab, had to go to rehab a couple of times a week. And I had to take her because she couldn't drive. You know, she only got one hand, uh, one arm. And so uh, I decided to write a book on uh, how to size positions. So I called it uh, Successful Traders Size Their Positions, Why and How. And uh, so I actually went back to the Trendstat actual algorithms that we used at Trendstat to size all of our futures and mutual fund positions, gave examples, gave the exact math we used. It's only about 80 pages. You can download it from the Enjoy the Ride World or it's available on uh, uh, in various formats at Amazon and iBooks and places like that. Thousands and thousands of copies for $10 a book. And it's got all my exact position sizing algorithms that I still use today. And I've been using for probably 35 years or so. And uh, that's been very well received and is a little more of a technical book. It's not, it's not something you wanna read. Uh, well, maybe you wanna read it before you go to bed, but um, it's not something that uh, is like re reading a Jack Reacher novel or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, there's a little more math involved and mm -hmm. I try to describe why you would want to do this. And then I show you how to do it. And so it's pretty easy to read. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that sounds right up my alley. That's something I'll be purchasing. Listeners go out there and get it. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, when I think of the three things you need for good trading, you do need a buy sell decision or some kind of way to buy or sell. You also do need, and more importantly, you need, how much do you buy or sell? Because if you buy too much, you're putting yourself in harm's way. If you buy too little, you're not really helping your cause much. You got to properly size your position. And more so than that, and even more important, and the most important is all the things we talked about in the early going here, is the mental side of trading, the awareness, the discipline, the uh, ability to control your mental states. That is going to mess up everything else you do if you don't have that correct. So you got to get those three things right. 
uh, to be a, a successful long-term trader. And uh, I think I've worked hard on all three and I think it's helped me a lot in life. So I would give that advice to every new trader starting out. Don't underestimate the mental and don't underestimate how important it is to size your positions. And then whatever you can do that makes sense on the buy sell decision, go for it. But it, don't, don't obsess over buy sell. Sure. Uh, worry about those other two a little bit more. Excellent. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Last, last question I'll ask yep. you. Um, man, I forgot where I saw this. Maybe you said it in an interview, maybe I read it in one of your bios, but uh, you are a competitive putter. What, what, what is, what's a competitive putter? I don't even know this was a thing. That's the third book I wrote. Uh, <laughs> there, you could get that on Amazon and it's also on the website. Uh, and I think it's called uh, putting the easiest stroke in golf. What happened is in high school, uh, three buddies of mine and I would go over to putt-putt in Eastwood on the east side of Syracuse. Uh, and on a Saturday night, and you would be in a competition with a whole bunch of other putters. And this was serious. I mean, it's stroke play, 108 holes. So you're going around the, the uh, 54, is it, hole layout twice. And that takes a while. I mean, mm -hmm. you're there for hours. They're fogging for mosquitoes and you're sucking in the DDT and everything. <laughs> and, uh, and then what you're competing for is like uh, a, a Big Mac coupon at McDonald's. This is <laughs> a huge tournament. Uh, but some of you might remember on Sunday mornings, there used to be this, this uh, show that would have putt-putt championships on television. And these are pretty serious. I mean, these guys are good enough that they one-putt everything. And you're on felt. I mean, the surface is perfect. It's planed concrete covered with stint meter 14 felt. And uh, the, your competitor, you're looking over at him and he's running everything in and you're quickly going to start saying, what's he doing that I'm not doing? What's his putter look like versus my putter? What's his grip look like versus my grip? Everything he does. And I started getting better and better at it. And I started getting very, very quiet and slowing my breathing like you're a sharpshooter, uh, you know, trying to take out somebody from two miles away, uh, a sniper or something. And I started really, really getting down to the nitpicking every little thing that was involved with putting. And I wrote a book called Putting the Easiest Stroke in Golf, including pictures of myself doing various things. And I go through everything from the design of the putter to the stroke and all of that. And uh, I haven't sold a lot of those books, but I, <laughs> I mostly wrote the book just to consolidate in one place in yeah. case I ever forget anything that I'm supposed to be doing. I can read my own book and remind myself and give myself a lesson. So that's kind of the the main purpose behind that one. And uh, so that's a third book I've written that that's probably had sales of at least a dozen. Yeah. Of at least, of at least a dozen. Oh yeah. man. <laughs> Tom, I love it. I, I love how meticulously you're, you're describing uh, <laughs> it, 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 it all translate, you know, uh, from putting to, to trading the mindset, the, the, how meticulous you are about it. I, I wish golf, this is, I, I got to get this golf and trading is very similar. You never oh, ever yeah. arrive. You only get better at it. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, mentally tough game um, yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I wish I would have got this book before Tom. I, it's funny. We were talking about Tiger Woods living down here, right around the corner yeah. from me. Um, yeah. He, I, I believe he's involved with this. Um, they got this like putt putt place, but it's supposed to be nice. They have a bar and like, yeah. it's like kind of like a little hangout place. And, uh, 
But man, I, I, I took a girl there, Tom, and the course was so hard. I was just trying to have a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm missing everything, man. I'm like, why is this course so hard? I thought this would just be a nice, like, little family friendly or, you know, a little date yeah. night. And, but this course was hard, man. Putt putt. I'm like, I got to get your book, Tom. I'll have to get well, as food. you would expect, I keep track of my stats on golf. Yeah. And I average just slightly more than 30 putts around, and I don't even work at it very hard. Yeah. If nice. I really worked at it hard, I probably could be down in the 29s. And that's getting to be sort of median level for the PGA Tour. Mm hmm. Excellent. So I'm, I'm pretty good with putting. I've yeah. given a lot of putting lessons and I've redesigned approximately a hundred putters over the years. And I've actually built one from scratch myself. Oh, cool. So Excellent. yeah, I've gotten into that over the years. One of my other extraneous hobbies that I've just <laughs> keeps life interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure you do a lot of things. Well, Tom, uh, what if I guess last question, cause I was, yeah. I was like asking guests this, um, uh, what, what are you currently reading? Any good books you're currently reading? Mostly these days I read for enjoyment. So uh, I just read fiction usually before I go to bed, just to mm -hmm. quiet down. Uh, so uh, I like J.D. Robb. Uh, it's, uh, it's Nora Roberts' uh, futuristic author name where she portrays this Eve Dallas, this futuristic cop in New York that's in 2040 or something. And they have, you know, cars that fly around and they have all sorts of interesting new tools that you can imagine uh, the way CSI and all the different uh, shows that go over laboratories and evidence. And, uh, and she's, she's pretty much a kick butt type of a lieutenant that uh, runs the, the homicide squad in a future New York City Police Department. And it, I, I love science fiction and i love thinking about the way things could be so it's kind of uh captures my imagination that you could actually uh have a sort of a thriller or a cop novel there's lots of those out there but most of them are real time today mm -hmm. and this one's set you know like 20 30 40 years in the future so it's it's kind of fun excellent excellent yeah fiction is something i've uh, just, just really taken up like the past year or so. I've always been a, you know, a nonfiction reader. Like I want things that are, um, I guess, practical, you could say. But I didn't, I didn't realize how um, philosophical uh, fiction can be or, you know, uh, you know, just learning about life through fiction, um, which, right. has been very, which has been very enjoyable for myself. Most of my life, I read nonfiction and I tried to, you know, the things on observer self and awareness and yeah. I've even read books on meditation, although I don't find that as useful uh, for me. I, I'd rather be aware and keep myself aware of what's going on in my thoughts real time rather than going off to a dark corner and meditating and trying to examine my thoughts that way. I'd rather mm -hmm. be stimulating my thoughts with real world. Yeah. Uh, I find it more useful myself, but you know, meditating works for some people. That's great. Uh, but I've also read lots of, you know, I read Dress for Success. I read, you know, Think and Grow Rich, all the classics uh, back when I was, uh, all sorts of sales books, because I was responsible at this. When when you're running Trendstat Capital Management and it's owned by Tom Basso, guess who the clients want to see? Tom Basso. So mm -hmm. I'm on the road on a plane going, doing a meeting in front of, you know, 10 people at Merrill Lynch level in New York City. Uh, and picking up a hundred million from them or something to manage those types of meetings. They want me there. So sales books on how to carry yourself and what to try to think about the sales process and all that being the chairman of uh, 
of uh, standpoint funds now here in uh, Scottsdale, uh, where they have the alternative, you know, 50-50 futures and stocks, uh, Blendex fund that we have. Uh, gosh, I mean, that type of thing to, to understand uh, Robert's rules of orders so I can run mm. the meeting to try to make sure I understand books on corporate law so that I can make sure that we stay within proper minutes and we approve the minutes and how do we do that and all that stuff. I'm, I'm the chairman, I'm supposed to run the meeting. So, mm. uh, you know, re I've read a lot of technical books like that, but it's so enjoyable at my stage of life to just kick back and read some science fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Oh, and I, I mean, I, not, not to keep the conversation and keep going on, but the, the sales okay. books, I was, uh, you know, before I got into like all the, um, you know, like poker trading, I was, I was doing sales and I, man, I just, I just learned so much from the sales books. And I think that's just a very underrated skill, um, uh, in general. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Is. All right. So Tom, I appreciate it. So that's going to conclude today's episode of confessions of a market maker. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join a professional supportive community of traders you can join JJ and myself at microefutures.com. Tom, uh, let the listeners know where they can find you and anything else you'd like them to know. Well, I'm uh, I'm in a lot of places these days. You can look at my website is enjoytheride.world, not .com, .world. It's actually a, a URL. And I have traders all over the world, so it makes sense to me. Um, you can get me at Twitter as uh, at Basso underscore Tom. Uh, you can like my page or follow my page at uh, Facebook. Uh, it's under Tom Basso and it's the page, not my personal. Don't try to send a friend request because I only use that for my family. I hardly ever post to it. I post to my page though. That's where you would get all my posts. Uh, I'm on MeWe and Parler. You can just search for my name there. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and that's been very popular with a lot of people. And uh, so you can find me there by searching on Tom Basso. So I'm, uh, I'm in a lot of places these days, thanks to broadcasts like these. So Excellent. Well, we, we appreciate you, you know, sharing your time with us, being gracious enough. Um, JJ, any parting words for Tom? Oh, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you know, really, really, really cool for me to, you know, you meet the, the people you read about and, and uh, you know, get grains of wisdom when you're starting out. <laughs> You know, and you hopefully remember them, but thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, JJ, it was my pleasure. All right. Excellent. So for Tom Basso, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop so.